0: when we redefine God in our own image, we are as surely making an idol as Aaron did. We may still claim to be worshiping the true God, but we in fact have chosen to worship him according to our own inventions, and we are violating his command.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part two of The Heart of Worship. Is it possible to think you're truly worshiping God wholeheartedly, when in reality He finds your worship unacceptable? Well, in today's message, Tom will continue to examine Exodus and Deuteronomy to reveal that God is not only concerned with how you worship Him, He alone has the right to prescribe how we worship Him, and He's done so in His Word. So you'll be challenged today, but you'll also come away enriched and edified, knowing the type of worship that pleases God in the manner that God Himself has commanded. Keep all that in mind as we join our teacher right now on the Word Unleashed.
0: Notice, don't make. That's the first command. The second command, or the second prohibition, verse 5, don't worship. You shall not worship them. Now the Septuagint here uses a word that refers to bodily gestures, such as bowing or kneeling. God says, don't make them to be an object of worship. And secondly, don't worship. That is, don't bow before them. Don't kneel before them. If you've ever seen any of uh, the pagan religions, you see this happening. You know, they have their little idols and they they bow or kneel before them. God says, don't make them. And secondly, don't bow or kneel before them. Notice thirdly in verse five, don't serve them. The word serve here includes all religious ceremonies, offering sacrifices, incense, etc. Don't make them, don't worship them, and don't serve them. The spiritual import of this command, listen carefully, the spiritual import of this command is incredibly far-reaching because it absolutely forbids all human invention in the worship of God. You and I don't decide how we'll worship God. Because we could easily stray, God says here, into idolatry. Now, what is the reason God gives for following only his prescriptions for worship? Look at verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them for, because, here's the reason, I am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is a fascinating statement the Hebrew implies that God becomes red with jealousy now you understand that this is what theologians call an anthropopathism that is it is attributing human emotions to God God doesn't have human emotions like we have but there are things in God that can be likened to our emotions of which our emotions are merely a picture And so what you have here, while God doesn't have jealousy like we do, there is some reality in God that can be accurately illustrated by human jealousy. Now remember that idolatry in any form is often described as spiritual adultery. Therefore, God says, if you do that, then I will become jealous. Exodus commentator Sarna puts it this way. He says, this is what God is saying, my people, if you commit spiritual adultery in your worship, I will respond like the most fearsome, wronged husband you have ever known. We've all seen jealousy and what it will do. When someone has been lied to, been sinned against, Spouse has been unfaithful. We've seen what that jealousy can produce. And God, while never sinful in his expression of it, is likening his response to that jealous husband. As Ligon Duncan puts it in his excellent book on worship, betray God by idolatry and he will deal with you like a red-eyed, jilted spouse. Spouse. Verse verse 5 says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now this expression is often misunderstood. This does not mean that children are punished for the sins of their fathers. Read Ezekiel 18. God says, absolutely never do I do that. I will deal with the sinner based on his own sin. So what does this mean? Notice, he says, of those who hate me. You see, what God is pointing out here is the reality and the power of influence. When the father embraces a wrong approach to worship, a wrong view of worship, and begins to practice that wrong view of worship, the children, the sons, will embrace through influence, through living in that home, that same wrong approach to worship, They will embrace it, and when God finds it in those succeeding generations as is normal, because of the power of influence, he will deal with it there just as he will deal with it in the fathers. What I want you to see, though, is why this contrast is here. Notice he says in verse 5, I visit the iniquity on those who hate me, verse 6, showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, folks, you and I often think in gray, but God here is very black and white. God says there are two kinds of people in the world, only two. There are those who love me, and there are those who hate me. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you can't honestly say, I love God, but, you know, I don't hate him either. After all, I'm here this morning. God says, you love me, or you hate me. But what I want you to see is how God determines in this passage who loves him and who hates him. God is saying in this passage, Those who worship me as I have prescribed love me, and those who worship me as I have not prescribed hate me. If you were to reduce this second commandment to its simplest form, we could say its theme is about worship. And this is what it tells us, that God is to be worshipped, yes, but only in the way he prescribes. Because to worship God in any other way is to show that we hate him, and it is to invite his response as a jealous husband, as a red-eyed, jilted spouse. God takes how we worship very seriously. Let me show you another passage that drives home the same point Exodus 32 Exodus 32 12 chapters later in less than 40 days after that dramatic scene at the foot of Sinai when God himself spoke those 10 words those 10 commandments less than 40 days here's what happens verse 1 now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain the people assembled about Aaron and said to him Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, and for reasons we'll never know to eternity, he says, okay, fine, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. All the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, stop there. If that's all you'd read, you might say, well, you know, maybe these people who were in Egypt for so long, I mean, their, their ancestors were there for 400 years. Maybe they have become so steeped in idolatry that they have already turned their back on the true God and they're worshiping again the gods that they knew in Egypt. I don't think you can make that point from the text. In fact, look at the next verse. Verse 5, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, that is before this golden calf he's made, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to... Notice the word Lord is in all caps. In English translations, when you see the word Lord in all caps like that, it is a translation of the Hebrew personal name of God, Yahweh. He is... Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh, to He is, to the great I am. You see, what's happening here is not that the people have come up with a replacement for the worship of God. Instead, they have perverted the worship of God. Now, what is this golden calf? Well, there are two possibilities. One is that it was actually intended to be a pedestal on which the invisible God of Israel was supposed to sit. This was common in the ancient world. They even did this for Baal. Baal was thought of as a human figure, and yet they often constructed a bull, and the idea was that Baal rode on the back of that bull that that was, as it were, his throne or his chair. It may very well be that that's what they're doing. They simply want this bull to be a channel through which they worship the true God. Or it may be that that calf was actually to represent one of God's attributes. You see, in even the Baal worship, Baal, as I said, was often uh, was a human figure, but he was sometimes pictured as a bull, not because they saw him also as a bull, but because the bull was to picture his power. It may very well be that this is to somehow picture one of God's attributes like his power. But regardless of which of those it was, it is a violation of the second commandment. They have through their own minds invented a way to worship the true God and it's a violation of what God had commanded. Notice right away two results of their wrong worship. Verse 6, immorality. So the next day they rose early, offered burnt offerings, took peace, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, a feast, and then they rose up to play. That's a euphemistic expression explained in 1 Corinthians 10. We're talking about immorality. What erupted here was a giant orgy. And let me tell you something. While that may specifically not happen, wherever the worship of God is not in keeping with how God is prescribed, there will always be loose living. Always. There's a second result verses 9 and 10. Intense divine anger the Lord said to Moses I have seen this people and behold they are an obstinate people now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them stand aside Moses I'm going to wipe them off the planet God had done this before you remember with all of humanity and saved only Noah and his family he had plucked Abram out of Ur and made him his own and God now says all right fine stand aside We're starting from scratch. You're going to be the man through whom I will build this nation. We shouldn't be surprised by that response, should we? What did God say in Exodus chapter 20? He said, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I will respond as a husband sinned against. There are many other biblical arguments for God caring about how we worship In the interest of time, I'm not going to be able to take you there, but let me just remind you of a couple. Leviticus chapter 10, you remember Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews were told they offered strange fire before the Lord. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know this. Verse 1 of Leviticus 10 says, it was not as God had commanded. They worshiped the true God, but they worshiped in a way that was not as God commanded. And how did God respond to that? You remember fire came out and consumed those boys. Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews, incinerated in a moment because of how they worshiped God. In 1 Samuel 15, you remember Saul's violation of the commands regarding worship by making sacrifice himself. And Samuel comes to Saul and he says, listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. How dare you cross that line and worship God, even worship the true God, in a way he has not prescribed. Our Lord enters in as well in Matthew chapter 15. You remember he talks to the Pharisees in Matthew 15 verses 1 to 9. And he says to them there, listen, it's just like Isaiah said. It's true what Isaiah wrote. You are worshiping me in vain because you are substituting your own traditions for what I have prescribed for the Word of God. Man-made worship is unacceptable to me. You see, from those texts and honestly many others, we can see that God is concerned about how we worship. And God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship Him. That's the principle that the Scriptures we've cited clearly argue. Now, those are just a few of the biblical arguments. We don't have much time remaining, so let's consider briefly the practical ramifications. I want to give you just four of them. There are many others, but let me give you four. Number one, as individuals, we must beware of redefining God in terms we find attractive. We must beware of redefining God the way we want him to be. You've heard people say, as I have, things like, Well, I think God is, and then you fill in the blank, or I like to think of God as, who cares? The question is, who is God, and how has he revealed himself? And when we redefine God in our own image, we are as surely making an idol as Aaron did that day. We may still claim to be worshiping the true God, but we, in fact, have chosen to worship him according to our own inventions. And we say things like, well, I know that's wrong, but God wants me happy. We have redefined God, and we are violating his command. Practical ramification number two. We must not allow any images to become a channel of our worship for God. We must not allow any images to become a channel for our worship of God. Folks, this has to do, obviously, with visual images. This is violated every day in several of the major denominations, if you will, of Christianity, in Roman Catholicism, in Eastern Orthodoxy, where they worship the true God through external images that supposedly are channels through which they worship Him. That is a clear violation of what we've looked at together this morning. But we also have to be careful of worshiping God through even mental images, creating mental images through which we worship God. God has described himself. We can only worship him as he has described himself. And can I add, in our day, electronic images? Some movie you've seen where that becomes the image through which you worship the true God? Number three, we are not free to redefine the purpose of the corporate gathering of the church. We are not free to redefine the purpose of the corporate gathering of the church. In our day, there are well-intentioned people, brothers in Christ, who redefine why we gather. But as we will see in the weeks ahead, God has prescribed worship as the primary reason we gather. We've already seen some of that, but we'll see it again in other in other passages. This is why we gather, and we can't redefine the purpose. We can't say, well, you know, we love we love Seekers, and therefore, we need to become a seeker friendly church. And we just need to really be on Sunday about evangelism. We won't even try to minister to the people of God, we won't really try to make it worship. We're just trying to reach out. Reaching out is a commendable thing. We all ought to be. If we're not evangelizing, we're disobeying Christ. But we can't redefine the reason the church gathers. We must worship God as He's prescribed, and He's prescribed that for the corporate gathering of the church. Number four. And finally, we can only include in the corporate worship those elements Scripture prescribes. We can only include in the corporate worship those elements Scripture prescribes. We've seen that this morning, how serious God is about that. We have to worship him as he has determined, not as we determine. Now, there was agreement among the Reformers on this basic principle It grows, of course, out of sola scriptura. The Bible is the ultimate and only inspired authority in faith and practice. But then there came a split, a disagreement. Some followed what was called the normative principle, and others followed what was called the regulative principle. Let me very briefly explain those to you. The Lutherans and the Anglicans joined with the Roman Catholics in embracing the normative principle. The normative principle teaches this, whatever scripture does not forbid is acceptable in worship. In other words, the normative principle asks, where does scripture forbid this practice in worship? And if we can't point to a passage where it forbids it, then it's okay to include it. If you're familiar with those denominations that hold to the normative principle, you now understand why they do some of what they do. The second position, the reformed of all stripes and colors, embrace the opposite position called the regulative principle. The regulative principle teaches this. Only that which Scripture actually prescribes is acceptable in the worship of God. In other words, you don't have to find a place where it's forbidden. All you have to do is ask, does the Bible command or sanction this? John Calvin Put it this way, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. Both the Westminster Confession, representing the Presbyterians, and the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, representing the Baptists and all that flowed out of them, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. The regular principle asks, where does Scripture command or sanction this practice? And if not, we will not allow it into worship. As you've seen this morning, I think that is what the Scriptures teach. We are in danger of straying from the genuine worship of God when we include human invention of any kind, even well-intentioned into God's worship the further we get away from God's directions the less we actually worship and the more likely it is that we will stray into the violation of God's clear commands now folks we'll talk more in detail about the elements of corporate worship in the future but let me just summarize them for you as we close our time together this morning here's what scripture prescribes first of all sing the scripture Sing the scripture. That is, sing to God music rooted in the truth of God's word. It doesn't have to be psalms only. We'll talk about that when we get to music. But the truth of it ought to be rooted in the word of God. You shouldn't, as a well known church ended their service as people left, have playing and singing Car Wash, the 70s song. It's unacceptable. We sing the scripture. Secondly, we pray the scripture. Our prayers grow out of our response to the Scripture. That doesn't mean we have to pray only the words of Scripture themselves. It means our prayers reflect the content of Scripture and our response to that content. Thirdly, we read the Scripture. That's prescribed in Timothy, and we'll look at that in detail. We teach the Scripture, just as I'm doing this morning. This is an act of worship. We give our offerings to see true scriptural worship supported here and extended elsewhere. That's an act of worship. And then finally, we see the scripture acted out in two signs or ceremonies, baptism and the Lord's table. Now, folks, if you understand this, that this is what God prescribes for worship, it adds solemnity to what we do when we gather together on Sundays but even more so, it adds joy. Think about this with me for a moment. As we do these things I've just mentioned with the right heart, we know that this is what God has prescribed, and so we know that it truly honors and glorifies Him. It brings joy to His heart. This morning, if you have with your whole heart sung the Word, prayed the Word, read the Word together, listened to the Word taught, if you've been worshiping, In that way, then you have been worshiping in exactly the way God commanded, and he's pleased. As we see the word acted out in the ordinance of communion, we are truly worshiping. We are worshiping God in the way he has prescribed. God alone has the right to prescribe how we worship.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, The Heart of Worship. Tom will bring you part three on our next broadcast and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting the Again, that's the And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.